built in his mind an abstract machine, which is now called the Turing machine. Although it was abstract, it was it was a rather concrete um, uh, version of a real machine. I think it suited him that his mother did not believe he committed suicide. The way he committed suicide gave her an excuse, gave her a justification for believing it was an accident, and that is what Alan wanted. From Palo Alto, California, this is Silicon Mines. I'm Jason Lopez. There is Alan Turing, the thinker and scientist who helped usher in computer science, and just as fascinating is Alan Turing, the man. Alan Turing is arguably the person who thought up what a computer can do. He's also considered the father of the study of artificial intelligence. Turing was born in London on June 23, 1912, just after his British parents arrived back home from a tour of India. His father, Julius, was a member of the Indian Civil Service. As a child, Alan was unusually good at math, to the dismay of some of his teachers, who tried to foster his interest in other subjects besides scientific ones, but he pursued a life of numbers. He graduated in 1934 from Cambridge University. It was during this time he developed an abstract machine to solve a mathematical problem of the day. It was called a universal machine, represented by an algorithm, a set of instructions on how to solve the problem. He thought of it as a machine that could compute all problems that could be computed. The Turing Universal Machine, although theoretical, behaved like a computer before computers existed. There's a strong case to be made that our laptops and smartphones are Turing's idea come to life. In his lifetime, Turing excelled at other endeavors, such as during World War II, he was a central figure in decoding Nazi ciphers. And as his career progressed, he became interested in artificial intelligence and morphogenesis, the mathematical basis for living things. As a person, Alan Turing was misunderstood by most people around him. He possessed world-class speed and distance running, and some thought that was more weird than astonishing. But an important thread in this story, he was gay, of which he was aware early in his teens— Turing suffered the indignities of keeping secrets and arrested and charged with indecency by authorities at the age of 39, was forced to undergo estrogen injections in an attempt to suppress his homosexuality. Certainly, these experiences played a part in his suicide two years later in 1954. His mother, Sarah Turing, wrote a biography about her son published about five years later, in honor of the 100th year anniversary of Alan Turing's birth, Cambridge University Press has republished the long out-of-print book, and I'm joined by David Trena, who was central in bringing the book back into print. He's the Editorial Director for Mathematics and Computer Science at Cambridge University Press, and he joins us via Google Chat from his office in Cambridge. David, let's start from the beginning of your association with Sarah Turing's biography. It was out of print. Well, I didn't know of this book. Um, it appears to have been privately published in a very limited number of copies in the late 1950s. Someone told me about it, and they'd also told me that the estate, namely John Turing's widow, wished to see the book republished. 
not only just republish the book, but also for it to be republished with an essay by John Turing, who in fact was Alan Turing's brother. So we were very excited about this because, first of all, it was a new discovery for me. As I said, I didn't know the book, but more interestingly, I didn't know that this essay existed either. I looked it up on Amazon and it was selling for several hundred pounds, I believe. If you could get hold of a copy of it, it would have set you back, you know, $1,500, something like that. Which was quite There's a lot, a I thought, find. for, a, for a, a sort of a hardback book published um, 50 years earlier. I got a copy of the book from the University Library here. I read it. I also read the article by John. And what struck me was not that there was anything new in the book. It's obvious that you sort of noticed yourself when you compare it with what's known about Alan now. Two things struck me. First of all was the um, evident lack of awareness of uh, Alan's character by his mother. That's the first thing. The second thing, how much she struggled, I think, and succeeded in explaining and understanding what Alan's later work was, the work that was about pattern uh, formation and morphogenesis in biological systems. And thirdly, and you could not uh, help but notice this, the clash between what uh, Alan's brother wrote and what Alan's mother wrote and remembered. And the real interest in the book was in that clash. And of course they did agree on a number of things like how um, difficult Alan was and about how eccentric he was and about um, what a sort of gifted person he was when he chose to be gifted. But you know that I think that sort of what comes over in that sort of essay by his brother was a certain amount of guilt as well. If only I'd done this, could I have done that? If only I'd done this. And the implication there is I think that there'd been a sort of argument between Alan and his brother and that that's what he was trying to rectify almost in his own personal memoir and maybe there was a sort of a bit of tension between John and his mother too I don't know possibly he felt that Alan had been um, the more favored by his mother who knows what it was about everyone's dead now so you can't actually ask them you can only sort of read between the lines so that's what I thought was really interesting and I thought that was what that was why the book was worth republishing, because it sort of shed that light on that um, relationship, all those relationships. So his brother wrote this essay after uh, Alan became famous, uh, yes. at, to some degree. Yes. But his mother wrote this book not really knowing who Alan was uh, in terms of his importance to the history of computer science and to to mathematics in general, or what? what's your take on that? When she wrote her biography, Alan's contribution to the foundations of computer science was well established because he'd done that work in the 1930s. I think um, the... And she knew this? She knew that, although I don't think she quite understood what the significance was. But what she didn't know about was his contributions to the building of the computers in the 1940s and the uh, decrypting of German Enigma codes, and because that was still secret until the mid-1970s. She doesn't explicitly recognize his homosexuality. His brother states that he doesn't even believe that his mother knew what homosexuality was. But I think that there is a certain amount of guilt there, not so much because she didn't admit that he was homosexual, because she might not even have known about that, but possibly because, you know, she had been somehow separated from Alan when he was being brought up in his early formative years. And reading the biography, that's a quite 
it's charming but rather sad that a lot of what she writes about his early years is a sort of third person, um, you know, quoting from schoolmasters and quoting from friends and quoting from uh, other people. She doesn't really have an intimate knowledge of what he was really like in his in his early formative years. She did try to get this book published, and it failed. Yes, uh, on, a, on initially to uh, to catch anyone's uh, interest. What? Why is that? I think because first of all, um, people didn't know who Alan Turing was. It looked like a personal memoir of someone who not many people were interested in. A few mathematicians and logicians maybe would have, would have been interested in it. Nobody knew really. You know, computers weren't everyday currency back in 1959. There weren't many of them. They were exciting sort of geeky sort of device that massive great rooms were required and, uh, you know, millions of valves and this sort of stuff. They, were, they weren't really part of everyday life then, like they became, well, even in the 60s and 70s. Plus, I suppose as well, the book is very much a, a, a personal memoir, a personal memoir written in a rather odd way in this third person. So maybe they felt it didn't, not only was the person not worthy of a biography, but maybe the biography itself could have been improved. And so that's why she eventually had to almost self-publish it. Something that you just said uh, kind of jogs an idea, and that is that uh, you look at pictures of computers from the 1940s and 50s, they look like something from the telephone company. Yeah, exactly. It's not until the 60s that they start looking like these sexy machines in yeah. James Bond movies yeah. that capture our imagination. Yeah, with those great whirling discs whizzing around. But before that, they were just sort of enormous, um, sort of almost prehistoric lumps of um, valves and, and gears and God knows what else they used to have with them. In your sensibility, who was Alan Turing? Who was Alan Turing? Well, he was probably a product of his time. He grew up in the post-First World War period. Uh, it's very exciting. Lots of very exciting scientific developments in the uh, 1920s. General relativity had just happened. Quantum mechanics was just being born. The sort of mathematical revolution that came about uh, because of the invention of set theory and all the paradoxes that that sort of threw up. He came to Cambridge. It must have been a very exciting time because he, by then he was um, uh, he decided to become a mathematician rather than anything else. And I suppose anyone with the imagination and natural curiosity that he had and the will and the skill and the technical ability to him, he must have just sort of thrived in that sort of environment. And I suppose people thought as well that no problem was too difficult. People who met him, um, starting with his family, but uh, people who met him quickly knew that there was something special about Alan. Oh, yes. I mean, he's fantastic. He had enormous amounts of native curiosity in practically everything. Plus, he allied that with technical skill as well and ability. You know, that was why he was recognized as being special. And I think that was why people put up with him being rather an annoying person and, you know, rather <laughs> dirty and, and sort of, you know, self, um, not self-obsessed, but I would say um, selfish, in fact, in many respects. And I don't he may have been too good in some ways, though, huh? He was an athlete as well. Yeah, well, there's a nice story in Sarah's book, actually, about um, when he was in um, the National Physical Laboratory, I believe, when uh, he was volunteering to run in a race. And I suppose some of the more sort of typical men were thinking, oh, he's some sort of geek who can't do this. And then, of course, he was sort of won. And so he was a very good uh, physical specimen, I think, very fit. And, you know, I mean, he was just an all-round person, amazing all-round person. He sounds like the kind of guy, especially 
the way that his mother knew him to be the kind of guy who not only was good with the concepts and the theories, the numbers, but also liked to roll up his sleeves and dive in and actually turn the knobs and put in the screws and and fit on the wires, that sort of thing. Yes, uh, yes, he loved to get his hands dirty. And he was not only strong physically, but he was sort of happy to do physical work or physical activity. But he was also interested in doing physical activity as well. So he and an, uh, an American logician called Alonzo Church solved this, uh, what was called the halting problem. And Alonzo Church solved the problem mathematically and or abstractly, shall we say. Whereas Alan had this sort of, had built in his mind an abstract machine, which is now called the Turing machine, which was sort of rather, sort of, although it was abstract, it was, it was a rather concrete um, uh, version of a real machine. Of course, it was infinite in size and all the rest of it, but nevertheless, it's interesting that he sold it using this sort of machine, shall we say, an abstract machine, and I think that's what appealed to him, this sort of engineering way of looking at things or doing stuff. Toward the middle of his career, after the war, he found himself pursuing other ideas. What do you think Turing's mindset was? He was, I'm not sure that it, life in Manchester after the war must have been very, very different from life in Princeton before the war, because we were still, there was still rationing, there was still, a, you know, people were still recovering from the war here. Although the lab in Manchester and the, and the um, environment in, Man in Manchester was one that was um, keen on research. It probably was a bit more difficult for him to maybe, with a bottomless pit of money that the war had provided, actually to um, make as much progress as he'd wanted to. But in any case, I think by that time his interests had been going further away from from ordinary building computers and actually to thinking, going back to the abstract model that he'd, um, he'd built and start to think, well, now that I've got a, uh, an abstract model for computers, now that um, I can reason about them, what, what, you know, what else can I do? And that was when he started thinking about his experiments from an earlier time on trying to see patterns in living um, organisms then he'd started thinking about thinking, abstract thinking. What's the difference between a computer or what a computer can do and what a human can do? Can I imagine experiments? Can I imagine um, a situation in which a computer is behind a locked door and a human is behind a locked door and I start asking them questions and I cannot determine from the answers they give which one is a human and which one is a computer. So he started then thinking about what became artificial intelligence. At the same time, rather um, presciently, he was also thinking about stochastic models of data, stochastic models of information. Now, I say presciently because in the early days of artificial intelligence that sort of happened in the late 1950s, people thought that computers, that they sort of were built around logic and that therefore they would reason logically and that and therefore in order to emulate humans they would do it by pure reason. The idea I suppose or the target for computers was then to um, emulate what a human can do strictly by pure reason. That turned out to be a dead uh, end 
because humans don't reason, make decisions based purely on reason. They base things on information or incomplete information. The incomplete information involves statistics. And it was interesting that um, Turing at that time was thinking about statistical methods. Plus he was thinking about, um, as I said, about things like patterns and morphogenesis and sort of living beings or living organisms. And I think he got really wrapped up you know, what makes humans think, how they make decisions, what is the characteristic of life, how does life evolve. All these questions, I think, were sort of revolving around in his head. Who knows what would have happened, because really before they'd reached fruition, he just made the first steps in some of these things. But really be, uh, before all these ideas that were in his head had gone into the pot and sort of been thoroughly mixed, he'd committed suicide. We were talking about this before the interview, and you know, one can only speculate why he took his own life. Although we can assume life can be miserable hiding one's sexuality in a country where it's illegal. Even a request for a, a posthumous pardon was denied this year. But people have committed suicide because of the persecution they've received for being gay. Well, of course, the, the obvious thing is that he'd been um, forced to undertake this um, estrogen treatment as um, a way of so-called curing his homosexuality. Homosexuality was a crime in the UK then. He'd been caught, and I suppose the police were very interested in prosecuting him, probably because he might have been a security leak. They didn't want any of what he knew to get out to um, the Soviet Union, and he knew a hell of a lot, and they wanted to make sure that um, his, his position wasn't... Um, compromised at all. So maybe they thought that by um, by prosecuting him, by forcing him to undergo this estrogen treatment, first of all he wouldn't have been a target for what he'd done up to then by the, um, for the Soviets and he wouldn't have done anything later which meant they could have compromised him further. But it was two years after he'd been prosecuted that he committed suicide. So it wasn't something he did overnight. It wasn't sort of an immediate um, it wasn't an immediate consequence, shall we say, of his prosecution that he committed suicide. Why he'd wanted to commit suicide? Why he wanted to? Um, why he wanted suddenly to commit suicide, shall we say, after thinking about it for so long? I don't know. It's interesting, and and maybe not so surprising, that his mother doesn't say anything about this in her book. I, I think it suited him that his mother did not believe he committed suicide. The way he committed suicide gave her an excuse, gave her a justification for believing it was an accident, and that is what Alan wanted. And so um, she was able to die and write her biography in the belief that he didn't commit suicide, but I'm sure he did. In the reprinted biography, you've included something new, an essay from Alan's brother, John, completed in the 1970s. What's the dynamic between Sarah's portrait and what John communicates. I think his brother had become a bit estranged from Alan by then. When you read the essay, as I said earlier, it's clear that he feels guilty. It's, it seems to me that it's perfectly legitimate to infer that he had um, cut some ties with his brother and that when he found out about his homosexuality and his suicide, John was, um, well, I think Alan had become estranged from John, not Im immediately before his death, but in the years prior to that. When uh, Alan had been arrested, he got in contact with John, 
and explain the situation and explain that he was homosexual, I think it, it was a bit out of the blue. I'm not sure how sympathetic John was to him. Probably wasn't very, in fact, I think it's clear that he wasn't very sympathetic. And so that when John found out that he committed suicide, he didn't really know why. He went to Manchester at that time and uh, sort of tried to piece together some things. It's clear that with the benefit of hindsight, John felt guilty. What he felt at the immediate time, I'm not sure. I um, think that he was still feeling a bit estranged, a bit annoyed, a bit angry with his brother. Obviously, one has to feel a bit of remorse when one's brother dies, but I don't think he felt that deeply about it. In later years, he did begin to feel deeply when he realized what Alan had done and what he achieved, sorry, I should say. But at the immediate time, I think he was more concerned with um, reputation of the family, the effect of the suicide or the effect of the death on his mother, you know, how best to retrieve the situation. He wrote the essay, he wrote various versions of the essay in the um, 60s and 70s. He tried to get it published, he'd failed to get it published. He kept improving it, adjusting it over the years. He was still writing it and improving it in the 1970s after Alan's achievements had become public and well known. But I don't think he'd ever really felt that he'd finalized it. There are so many different versions of it that I think he felt that he was always wanting to write a bit more. If Alan Turing were alive today, what do you think he'd be working on? I think he would have been really interested in things like robotics and making robots. I think that would have appealed to him. Building something that moved and building something that interacted with the environment. So I think, I think he may have made a, a lot of contributions in that dimension. We might see him in Silicon Valley rubbing elbows with internet billionaires. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure he was interested in money. Uh, he didn't seem to be <laughs> very interested in it. But, uh, but I think he was interested in sort of machines for them you know, and sort of research for its own self. I'm sure he would have been uh, rich, though, even if he, uh, even if he uh, uh, had relied on other people to make him rich, as it were. But, but he does seem like someone with uh, a lot in common with the people who changed the world with the work they did from their, you know, their quote-unquote garages. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think people have written about how they happen to be, what well, so Newton famously said that he had seen further than others because he stood on the shoulders of giants. And I think that's, sort of a, that's rather a poetic way of describing it, but, but it is a question of being around at the right time, having the right body of skills, having your own natural curiosity and having the drive and the willpower just to work at something until it happens. And I think that's what characterized uh, Alan. He had drive, he had willpower, he had skills, and he was there at the right time. And he just did it. David Trenop has been our guest. He's the editorial director for mathematics and computer science at Cambridge University Press. And he was instrumental in helping to republish Sarah Turing's biography of her son, a biography entitled Alan M. Turing. It's a wonderful piece of history. I just feel very privileged and thrilled to be able to have been involved in this republication and this sort of, not so much the enrichment of our knowledge of Alan, but in the enrichment of our understanding of Alan and how, um, and, and a little bit more about the environment or the, or the particular familial environment in which he was um, growing up and working. And 
I don't think there's any formula that you can dream up that will say by doing this, that and the other, then you get uh, what Alan did out of it. But I think it's very interesting to be able to understand a little bit better about how a human like he operated. Thank you, David. I'm very pleased to have been here and I really am grateful you got in touch with me. The centennial of Alan Turing's birth is this weekend on Saturday the 23rd. And this weekend there will be many events around the world commemorating the achievements and life of Alan Turing, most notably the Alan Turing Year Project. And you can find it, and I'll say this slowly, at mathcomp.leeds.ac.uk backslash Turing2012. mathcomp.leeds.ac.uk backslash Turing2012. This has been Silicon Minds, produced by Connected Social Media in Palo Alto, California. I'm Jason Lopez.